Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Richard Whitman from the Department of European Studies and Modern Languages discusses muscles from Brussels, a 21st century superpower. Where does the EU fit in global politics? How do we explain the role that the EU currently plays within international politics? And what is the impact of a developing international role for the EU on its member states' foreign security and defence policies? It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all here this evening to the inaugural lecture, which is to be given by Professor Richard Whitman. Richard is Professor of Politics in the Department of European Studies and Modern Languages. He is also an Associate Fellow Europe at Chatham House, uh, formerly known, as you will all know, as the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and he convenes the work of the Brussels-based European Policy Centre um, on the European Union's neighbourhood policy. Before he came to the University of Bath, Richard was Senior Fellow Europe and Head of the European Programme at Chatham House. Prior to arrival at Chatham House, he was Professor of European Studies at the University of Westminster, and there he was also Director of the Centre for the Study of Democracy between 2001 and 2003. Richard is a contributor to many leading journals and has presented many papers and keynote addresses, as you would expect for a person of his eminence. His current research interests include the external relations and foreign and security and defence policies of the European Union and the governance and future priorities of the European Union. He is the author of many books. They include From Civilian Power to Superpower, The International Identity of the European Union. He edited The Foreign Policies of the European Union Member States and also edited Rethinking the European Union, Institutions, Interests and Identities and the Enlargement of the European Union, Issues and Strategies. You will be getting the idea he's rather interested in the European Union. (laughs) And his current book is called Pax Bruxellana and is due for publication later this year. Richard is also a regular media commentator, working with print and broadcast media at home and overseas. He's been interviewed widely on Europe and European integration, um, and his recent coverage has included uh, BBC Radio and Television, CNN, Bloomberg, CNBC, Newsweek, the International Herald Tribune, and the Wall Street Journal. Um, It's not bad, is it? Especially given that I am perpetually saying to the academics in this university, I want you out there visible with high-impact media coverage. Richard is doing the business for us, and I thank him for that. And it's not a surprise, is it, that he was elected an academician of the Academy of Social Sciences in 2007 in recognition of the tremendous work he has done. He's also now chair-elect of UACES, the Professional Association of Practitioners and Academics Researching and Teaching European (coughs) Studies. Um, It's with great delight that I present Richard to you this evening, and he will be speaking on the topic of muscles from Brussels, and I don't think it's the edible type, uh, a 21st century superpower. Richard, over to you. Thank you. Uh, Vice-Chancellor, thank you very much for your introduction, and uh, I'd like to thank all of you who have turned out this evening uh, to listen to me talk on, uh, or talk on an area that uh, you can see I've spoken on quite a lot uh, in the past. I have to uh, offer some thanks at the start to Christine and Lauren for their work in helping to arrange the event uh, this evening, also to Christos and Marianne, who are the other people wearing the same silly dress as me, who are... PhD students and have acted as ushers, so thank you to them. And also, I think, to uh, uh, Roger, uh, the dean, who's trusted me with the first uh, inaugural lecture on his uh, watch. 
uh, to Sue Milner, uh, the uh, head of uh, ESML, who hasn't done anything to discourage me from doing it, and uh, to all uh, colleagues and particularly students who have turned up here this evening. It's very much appreciated. And obviously to my uh, family and friends who uh, have also turned up. And I hope that in the course of the evening, I'll provide them with the answer to the question that I know they've asked themselves often, what on earth does he spend his time doing? Uh, so uh, I hope that uh, part of that might be answered anyway. Now, I know that many of you will be familiar uh, with the Brussels-born karate-fighting classical ballet-trained kickboxing sensation that is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, and you'll be aware that he has made the uh, successful transition from uh, a career uh, as a kickboxer to uh, high-octane action movies. And why he's of interest to us is that he has the nickname, The Muscles from Brussels. For those who are less familiar with uh, Jean-Claude's acting oeuvre, I'd recommend his very sensitive portrayal of a brother seeking revenge in the 1989 movie Kickboxer. <laughs> uh, the two for the price of one treat, Double Impact, where he plays twins uh, who were separated at birth, reunited to wreak revenge on those who killed their parents. And my own personal favourite, Universal Soldier, uh, which has Van Damme playing alongside Dolph Lundgren, another actor who's well-known for his character parts, uh, as uh, two, two soldiers who kill one another in Vietnam and are reanimated in a secret army project. The good news is that Universal Soldier 3 is due for release later this year, so uh, I'm sure you'll look forward to that. Well, this is all very exciting stuff, but what I want to argue this evening is that there actually is now a new competitor uh, for the title of Muscles from Brussels. Now, this contender doesn't have anything like the agility of Mr. Van Damme. He doesn't, or it doesn't, rather, cause jaws to drop in the same way that uh, Van Damme does with gravity-defying uh, gravity uh, feats of heroism. Or, I'm told, it doesn't have the same sex appeal. Um, but, but it is of interest to us because it is of increasing power and influence. The contender may surprise a number of you, but it is the European Union. Now, the basis for my argument comes from a central research puzzle that I've been grappling with for, I realise we're writing this, a decade and a half since the end of the Cold War. And the puzzle that I faced is how do we explain the role that the European Union plays in international politics? And how does that developing role relate to the role and function of the member states' foreign uh, and security policies? Now, it's not obvious to many Europeans, and I suspect people in the room here, that Europe has any kind of global role. And certainly in this country, which is notoriously Eurosceptical, the proposition that the European Union might be a superpower is an anathema. I also have to offer a sort of public health warning to my colleagues here who, who study Europe, that I'm going to use Europe in a very uh, simple and, and shorthand fashion, where Europe is going to be used for the EU, the EU for Europe, uh, and its member state governments. So I'm probably going to be drummed out of the Union of European uh, Studies uh, scholars, so uh, I apologise. But when I was uh, starting uh, on preparations for this lecture, I did what any contemporary student does in preparing for an essay. I googled. And if you google European Union superpower, very satisfyingly, the first link that you get is a Wikipedia entry on superpower and the EU as a potential superpower. So who am I to disagree with the internet? However, I have anticipated that the audience here might be a little more demanding. Uh, so I'm going to offer a, a bit more by way of substance uh, here uh, this evening. And I want to come back to the definition of superpower a bit later, uh, if you allow me to. What I want to point out at this stage, though, and this is really to allay the fears of any readers of Dan Brown in the audience, there is no secret conspiracy to make the European Union a superpower that will be revealed this evening. Rather, it's the role that's actually being thrust on the EU uh, and one which collectively as citizens we need to think quite hard about because we need to think hard about the power and influence we actually, uh, or the way in which the power and influence the European Union has uh, is actually used. Now, my own 
interest uh, in the uh, European Union and the European Union's capacity for uh, global influence came from something that I read at the end of the Cold War by an American professor called Samuel Huntington. Samuel Huntington is probably known to a number of you in the audience uh, for his idea of the clash of civilizations, that that the future is about a clash between the West uh, and the rest. Now, we can forgive him that because he had something very interesting to say about the European Union. And as I say, the thing that got me intrigued and interested in what the European Union uh, does or how it functions internationally. What I think Huntington was very prescient in identifying at that time in the late 1980s was that the EU actually had the capacity to become a significant international actor. But where I think he was wrong is in setting the, the preconditions, the preconditions being for him that the EU would become politically cohesive. Now, that hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened in the sense in which I think he understood it, which was the creation of some kind of uh, proto-European state. What has happened, though, and what I want to suggest to you this evening, is actually the structure of international relations itself has been changing and transforming to create an environment in which the forms of power that the EU actually has uh, are taking on greater significance. So it's not becoming politically uh, cohesive in the way that Huntington thought, but rather, if you like, the world is changing uh, around uh, the European Union. And that's contributing to its increasing uh, international importance. Now, to explore this idea, what I'm going to do is to work through three areas of change in contemporary international relations and to illustrate uh, how in each of these areas they're causing uh, a relative uh, increase, uh, an increase rather, in the relative international significance of the European Union. So I want to talk about the balance of power, the changing structure of the international political economy and the increasing uh, institutionalisation of international relations. So let me turn to the first of those, uh, the changing balance of power. Balance of power is a very important idea for people who work within uh, international relations. It is uh, probably the the oldest concept uh, that we have and can be traced back to the ancient Greeks, to Thucydides, is that right, the Greeks in the audience, or Thucydides, rather, the Greeks, is that correct? I've been working on that pronunciation. Um, one of the, the things that's characterised uh, international relations in the post-Second World War period has been a bipolar balance of power. A bipolar balance of power understood as the distribution of significant and effective world power. It's the thing that, for many people working in the international relations field, conditioned what emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War. In that situation, two major contenders emerged, the United States and the Soviet Union. And around them, they built uh, allies uh, who were encouraged, cajoled, uh, to uh, sign up uh, to either side of this bipolar divide. It's from that thinking about power and the way that power was exercised in uh, the middle of the 1940s that we get the idea of superpower and the idea that there is a connection between power and the balance of power. And the term superpower itself was first coined in a book written in 1944 by an American academic called William T.R. Fox. And what the book focused on was the global reach of super-empowered nations, a special category of uh, supremely powerful states who occupied, as he characterised it, a high status in the world. According to Fox, there were, at the moment of his writing in 1944, three superpowers. Who was the third? Soviet Union, United States, number three. The United Kingdom. And for Fox, the full title of his book was The Superpowers, the United States, Britain and the Soviet Union, Their Responsibility for Peace. And Fox's argument, and I want to return to this a little later, was that world peace was dependent on these few key powers upholding world order. And the idea was that superpowers weren't just monumentally powerful, but also they were willing to stand up and be counted in terms of the special duties and responsibilities that went with being a superpower. Fox's original uh, rationale for including Britain 
was because of its occupation of territory. Britain, the British Empire accounted for 25% uh, of the total land area, 25% of the world population. And of course, at the moment in which it was, Britain was defined as a superpower, it disappeared uh, as a superpower. So that's obviously a cautionary note for people like me claiming to identify some kind of new superpower. But it's also instructive in the sense that it makes very clear that size of population and territory have absolutely nothing to do with superpower status. So, tripolar balance of power, we never got it. We got a bipolar balance of power. And superpowers and the bipolar balance of power became synonymous with one another. And for many commentators, and uh, this would include me, the bipolar system had a stability that went with it. A stability understood as no direct conflict between the two major powers in that system. And it meant that the system tended to induce a cautiousness amongst policymakers rather than a recklessness. But there was, of course, a cost. And the cost was that that peace, or the price of that peace, rather, was because the superpowers pursued conflict by proxy in Africa, in Asia, Central uh, and South America. Now, for scholars of international relations, we failed to predict the end of the Cold War. And we've spent the period since the end of the Cold War trying to explain what has replaced it, which is a very good reason to study international relations. We've still got plenty to do. And with the end of the Cold War, there are all sorts of questions about what the nature of the new international environment is and what has replaced the bipolar balance of power. Now, initially, in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, there was the suggestion that we were moving away from bipolarity to a new tripolarity. And in that tripolarity, it was economic confrontation that would replace power politics, a struggle between the US, the EU, and Japan. The European Union had arrived as a preeminent actor in the international system. And the talk was no longer a talk of geopolitics, but rather a talk of geoeconomics. And the idea being that the tools and accoutrements uh, of war as measures of significant power were being replaced. And it's this period uh, that Joseph Nye uh, wrote about the notion of soft power, with which many of us uh, are now familiar. This moment of geoeconomics, or the claim that we were in a different structure uh, to international relations, was rather hastily uh, pushed to one side in uh, August 1990 with the invasion of Kuwait, and then 1991, the conflict in Yugoslavia, really put some uh, stress back on the idea that the need to preserve peace within the international system at the end of the Cold War also meant the need the means uh, to use force or to have the capacity to use force and clearly something which the European Union and its member states didn't enjoy uh, collectively. And it was because of that use of military force to uh, solve uh, international problems. We had across the Atlantic the idea that we'd reached a kind of unipolar moment, that the United States was a preeminent military and political power, its old challenger, Soviet Union, disappeared. And we had commentators such as uh, Hubert Vadrin, who was then French foreign minister, describing the United States as a hyperpower. We had in the US commentators claiming that we'd reached the end of history and that the 21st century was going to be the American century. And within that were the seeds of what we came to know as neoconservative thinking. And we all know uh, where that took us. But Europeans also bear a responsibility here for not countering the more hubristic elements of US thinking. We collectively, and here I mean Western Europeans, during the Cold War, we subcontracted our thinking about geopol geopolitics to the United States. We lost our geopolitical mojo as Europeans. Because geopolitics was something that was associated with empire. And hadn't geopolitics and a concern with global predominance got Europeans into enough trouble in the 20th century? 
Things have moved on rather quickly. In, in the late noughties, we've suddenly been confronted with a rather abrupt end of the Pax Americana, which disappeared somewhere in the middle uh, of the war in Iraq. The United States appears not just to have lost its capability to impose its will militarily, but also, crucially, its authority and its pretensions to a leadership role within international relations. And this can't easily be regained, even by an intelligent and charismatic new US president. We should have expected this, though, as Paul Kennedy uh, reminded us in his masterful work, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, that all great powers are eventually surpassed. And he also reminded us that there is a key relationship between economic wealth as a mainstay of military power and military power being the best guarantee for the expansion and retention of economic strength. Kennedy also made the point that great powers exercise their power and influence by guaranteeing international peace and prosperity. There is a co-option of other states to accept their leadership, a notion that within international relations thinking we have called hegemony or hegemony, and I'll return to this uh, a little later. Now, though, we're in uh, a condition of uncertainty. It's not really clear yet what the consequences of this decline of US uh, hegemony might be for world order, for the functioning of international relations, or for the international political economy. There's been, of course, a great debate on this in the United States, but I think much less uh, debate in Europe, I would suggest. One idea that has been advanced is that we're now confronted by some kind of new concert of great powers, encompassing the so-called BRICS. That's Brazil, Russia, India, and China. You can see Russia's back. It's the take that of international relations, uh, enjoying a second career. So we have these new uh, BRICS uh, alongside the older contenders, United States, Japan, and the European Union. What I think we can best say about this group of great powers is that they're a work in progress. As you can see from this table, they're rather a disparate, unequal grouping, if you take a look at GDP per head or total GDP, for example. And just looking at this group of countries, of course, it tells us nothing really about how these capabilities translate into political power within the international system. But what's crucial for us, thinking about the 21st century, is what those trends might be. What... Uh, the development path will be of India, China, and Brazil, and crucially, what they want within uh, international relations. And we need more scholars studying this. So for those of you who are not studying on our politics with international relations undergraduate degree or our master's degrees here, uh, you should be. Um, but for the purpose of this lecture, I unfortunately haven't got time to focus on the fascinating story that is the rise of China and Brazil and India, but rather my focus uh, uh, has to be on the, the European Union and particularly thinking about the European Union as some kind of putative great power. Now it's one thing to suggest that you may have the capabilities to be in the Premier League of international relations. It's quite another to actually seek out to have some kind of grand uh, geopolitical role. But one of the things that's becoming clearer is that Europeans don't have an entirely free hand in this respect. There are, from outside the European Union, increasing expectations made of the European Union. We've now got a flourishing area of research that looks at uh, attitudes and opinions of uh, political elites and publics towards the European Union. And what's striking is that you often see that those outside the European Union have a stronger sense of the European Union's coherence and potential influence than those uh, residing within the European Union. What conclusions can I draw from the place that the EU might be operating or, or um, occupying, rather, in the balance of power in contemporary international relations? Well, measured across certain indices, the EU doesn't look out of place. 
when set against the rising powers, for example. But what I'm not arguing is that the European Union is some kind of proto-19th century great power, engaged in a balance of power struggle with a group of other states. And this, primarily, this is primarily because the European Union lacks fungibility. That's the ability to bring together all the capabilities of its member states to further its interests. But also, uh, what I want to argue is that because of increasing globalization and with it the attendant regionalization and institutionalization of international relations, we're not traveling back to some kind of 19th century future. Rather, we are now traveling forward into a position in which the role of putative great powers has been transformed. And this takes me on to changes uh, in the international political economy, which I want to look at before I move on to um, changes in the institutionalization of international relations. The IPE, or the international political economy, uh, is uh, the area that takes a look at the relationship between domestic and international politics uh, and domestic and international economics. So there won't be any international political economists in the room this evening. They're all too busy sorting out the mess we currently find ourselves in. But clearly one of the factors, uh, or the factor that's caused the rise of the BRICS and for us to talk about the rise of the BRICS is that the change that's taking place in the international political economy is because of a change in the relative decline of the United States economically vis-à-vis -vis other states and regions. Now, this change has been a long time uh, in the making. And the change itself is important not just because of the way that the US economy uh, is uh, shrinking relative to other growing uh, economies, but also by the role and functions that are performed by the United States within the international political economy. And one part of that story, and a story that people have been telling since the early 1970s, is that as the US economy has undergone a relative decline, the EU proportion of world GDP, for example, has increased, and I'll come on to this in a moment. And that's led to talk of the EU being an economic superpower, a strange superpower, or some kind of super-trading state. And there's something in this. If we take a look at the position of the EU in, in the current international political economy, then clearly in terms of uh, shares of world GDP, um, put the figures in this week, uh, they're not so much different from what's happened to world GDP, um, you'll see that the EU is clearly uh, significant and a preeminent uh, part of the uh, international political economy. Likewise, if you look at where trade flows in goods and services, if you take a look at foreign direct investment, then clearly we could reach the conclusion that the European Union is unquestionably an important player within the international political economy. But what's as important is the general trend within the international political economy. And that is that even though we have the uh, rising economies of China and the other BRICS, that the EU's relative share of world trade is falling at a much, much slower rate than that of the United States. Roughly, uh, China uh, is taking uh, chunks out of the United States in the overall aggregation. And it's this, or these trends, that give rise to uh, debate about what happens as the US hegemonic power, hegemonic understood as the role played by a state in managing the international political economy, making, sustaining, enforcing the rules of the international political economy. And one thing that's happened across time and over the last three decades is that the US has been increasingly forced to share that role with the European Union. The EU has become a much more important rule setter in the international political economy, not just by virtue of the size and importance of its economy, but also because of the process of creating the single market. And the single market and the requirement for norms and standards for that single market has had an external impact because single market standards single market uh, health and safety requirements, uh, environmental uh, um, benchmarks and so on, all of those have been adopted off the shelf by other states. And they've been adopted off the shelf, not just uh, to import in the European Union market, because there's a clearly drawn set 
uh, of um, uh, rules and standards uh, which have been well worked through, uh, and that's the outcome of the single market process. We can see this even more powerfully if we look at uh, international responses to climate change. The European Union has been able to carve out a role for itself as a rule setter and a rule promoter in response to uh, the new politics of the environment. And this is primarily, of course, because the United States has abrogated that leadership role uh, for the last uh, decade uh, and a half. So the European Union already has a keen interest in what the consequences of a US uh, hegemonic decline are. But the unknown is what do the BRICS want. At the moment, they are crudely, I put this crudely, they're rule takers rather than rule makers. Will they continue to be content to see the international political economy run through the same institutions that it has been since the end of the Second World War and with the balance of power that one finds within those institutions in terms of voting rights, rules and procedures, so on and so on? The European Union has developed uh, across time to be important in this area, primarily because of the internal integration process which had its start within the founding treaties, gave a broad authority over aspects of trade relations with, uh, uh, for the, those communities with the outside world. And it was the internal integration process that drove an external predisposition towards what we can call an intersecting multilateralism. The multilateralism of the European Union intersecting with the multilateralism of organisations like the WTO. And that intersecting multilateralism is part of the Union's political uh, DNA, and I'll come back to that a bit later. What we have within the institutions uh, of, uh, that deal with the regulation and management of the international political economy is, in some areas, relatively clear and straightforward European Union representation, and it's that representation, particularly through the WTO, that's given rise to the idea of the European Union as an economic power. And it's also given the European Union a capacity to exercise that power. Things have got more complicated across time as world trade negotiations have dealt with issues such as intellectual property and services and so on. And you could see, if you look at the OECD or other UN agencies that deal with uh, uh, issues and aspects of the international political economy, it's a rather uh, untidy arrangement for the European Union. And in this area, particularly on the bottom row, uh, what goes on uh, or the way the EU negotiates and represents itself within a whole range of organisations and agencies, we have some of the most interesting work being done uh, by yeah, young scholars. The conclusions that they're drawing is basically the European Union spends an awful lot of time talking amongst itself about what it wants and less time representing what it wants uh, to third countries. But alongside uh, this multilateral diplomacy, the European Union has engaged over the last 50 years in creating a whole network of bilateral and multilateral or region-to-region -region relations with non-member countries. What the European Union has done is it's actually painted the map blue. And it's painted the map blue through a network of bilateral preferential trade agreements, partnership and cooperation agreements, association agreements. And it's actually easier to list the countries that the European Union doesn't have a trade agreement with than to list the ones that it does. And the European Union's own axis of evil is Libya, Mongolia, Myanmar, Nepal, North Korea, and Yemen. Now, many of you may think that all of this talk about trade policy doesn't represent real foreign policy. You might be willing to concede that the European Union is some kind of uh, significant economic power, might even be willing to accept that it's an economic superpower. What I want to suggest is that it's from this platform of having a foreign economic policy that the European Union has actually managed to develop a distinctive form of diplomacy. What it's done over time is to create a whole network of relationships with third countries that are not just about the economics. What's happened particularly over the last decade and a half is that in trade agreements, the European Union now includes, includes political clauses that deal with issues such as democracy, human rights and nuclear disarmament. Obviously not issues that you think about immediately when you think about what should go into a trade agreement. And this creates difficult relationships with third countries. If you look, for example, at the negotiations the European Union has been conducting with the Gov Cooperation Council, the grouping of states uh, in uh, the 
uh, Arabian Persian Gulf. They've been negotiate, negotiating for 18 years to try and reach a bilateral uh, trade agreement. And the obstacle that they confront is that the Gulf states will not accept clauses that deal with human rights or democracy and so on in uh, trade agreements. And the European Union has taken these bilateral agreements and created kind of wrappers of policy. And the best example, which I've tried to uh, represent graphically here, is the policy that it's adopted for its near neighbourhood, the European Union neighbourhood policy, which brings together uh, the countries of the Mediterranean littoral for the purpose not just of trading, and for all of them the European Union is their most important trading partner, but also the European Union's ambition is to transform their economies and to stimulate thereby uh, political liberalisation. Now, we can argue about whether we feel that's an appropriate thing for the European Union to do, but there is embedded within its trade policy, its foreign economic policy, a clear political uh, intent. There's one other area I want to touch on uh, on this uh, segment on the international political economy uh, before we move on, and that's the euro. Now, one of the, the things I want to suggest about the euro is that it's actually chipped away at the hegemonic position occupied by the United States because of the emergence of the dollar as a currency of international significance, uh, the euro rather, as a currency of international significance alongside the dollar. The euro now is number, number two. There are actually more euro notes and coins in circulation than dollars, and that's not because the European Central Bank has been pursuing a policy of quantitative easing. Um, but it's because uh, it's a reflection of the size uh, of the eurozone uh, economy. And you could see from the figures here that in terms of international debt, in terms of forex, in terms of trading in currency pairs, in terms of uh, how foreign exchange reserves are held, the euro now matters. But what we have is a mismatch between the euro being important uh, across those indices and also the fact that there is no effective Eurozone representation within the IMF or the G groups, that's the G8 and the G20 and so on. And uh, perhaps we could push that a bit further and say that the Euro area might have played a fuller role in the resolution or assisting in the resolution of the current global economic challenges if uh, there was such a better form of representation on the part of the Eurozone countries. Anyway, let's turn from the international political uh, economy to my third area, which is the increasing uh, institutionalization of international relations. And what I want to argue here is that over time, there has been this increasing institutionalization of international relations. And the EU's response to that inter, uh, institutionalization has actually provided a distinctive character to the EU's role. What we've seen since the Second World War is a dramatic acceleration in the creation of international and regional organisations. There are now over 7,000 intergovernmental, uh, international and regional organisations uh, alone. And a, a long, or part of, that, part of that story has been substantial increase in regionalisation, where you now have a significant number of regional organisations that incorporate a whole variety of tasks. The rise of regionalization has a, a number of causes, but a key driver has been technological changes, which have raised the question about whether the nation state is actually able to cope with transnational phenomena, whether it's able to cope with phenomena that flow across its borders, and whether its states are able to cope with the increase, increasing blurring between the domestic uh, and uh, the international. And that's raised all sorts of questions about the viability of state sovereignty and how far states are actually able to exercise uh, state power uh, internationally. The European Union itself is a curious, uh, peculiar manifestation of regionalism in that what we have is we've got the European Union as a regional actor, but also at the same time it's created institutions of governance incomplete as they are, exercising power alongside and above those of the nation-state. So in a new environment in which we increasingly have a state-centric world, coexisting with a world where we have multicentric, transnational, national and subnational actors 
the European Union actually doesn't look that peculiar. It looks as if it's catching the wave. And one of the things about the European Union is that it's also been uh, a, in the vanguard of these developments. Or rather, our continent has been in the vanguard of this kind of regionalization. Europe is a hotspot of regionalization. It's characterized by a unique density of international institutions that cover it. We love international institutions in Europe, not just pan-European institutions, but also sub-regional uh, organizations. And I think it's this very embeddedness of European states within this setup of multilateral and regional organizations that forms part of the DNA that informs the role that the European Union wants to have globally. Europeans, I mean European governments, European member states, appear to have a built-in predisposition to approach international relations through institutions and to favour the creation of international regimes and norms to solve problems. In other words, if Europeans identify a problem, the way they deal with it is to create an institution with which to deal with that problem. But the European Union is also something of a cuckoo in the nest in its own continent, because, of course, as the European Union's enlarged, it's been taking an increasing share of the other regional organisations that are part <coughs> of the European continent. And the European Union has merged from being one of a set of institutions on this, uh, 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 in the European continent to the predominant or the preeminent organisation within its own, uh, its own uh, sphere of the globe. One of the ways in which the European Union done, has done this rather assertively is through uh, the policy uh, of enlargement. And for many commentators, this is the European Union's strongest foreign policy tool. And it's through the policy of enlargement the European Union has transformed the international relations of Europe. For those of you who are familiar with the more recent variants of the Star Trek franchise, the EU resembles the Borg, the nemesis of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, in that resistance to membership appears futile. And uh, the EU absorbs the countries on its borders with which it comes into contact. This process of EU enlargement has also given rise to the idea that the European Union is itself an imperial entity by its pattern of growth. And of course, our three, or the three superpowers that were identified by Fox were all also empires. And the European Union does have some characteristics of imperial endeavour in that it's maintained its expansion on the basis of co-option, consent, and a degree of coercion. If we turn outside Europe, though, the picture's somewhat mixed in terms of the EU's ability to punch its weight and to exercise influence. If you take just the G8 and the UN Security Council as an example, we're all, I'm sure, familiar with the fact that the European Union doesn't have particularly effective uh, collective representation. And, as you can see from the UN, if you just take the, the figures along the bottom there, the European Union is much more of a payer than a player in the UN system. It's not the European Union has a... It doesn't have any kind of problem in understanding the value of multilateralism, but rather it has a big problem in exercising power and influence in multilateral institutions outside Europe, which are not those that deal with issues of uh, political economy. And that takes me on to the attempts that the EU member states themselves have made to try and create a more coherent foreign policy alongside their foreign economic policy. Many in the audience are probably not aware that the European Union has actually been trying to create a common foreign policy for nearly 40 years, since the late 1960s originally driven in part by a desire to be a second Western voice to that of the United States, emerging in the era uh, of the Vietnam War. Commentators have tended not to view these attempts to build a, a foreign policy uh, very charitably. In the words of one influential article, Europeans have, tend to go, have tended to go for procedure as a substitute for policy. Who put it less charitably, you could say that there's been EU foreign policy fiddling while Sarajevo, Beirut, Georgia, and Gaza have burnt. What I'd like to do is to put this into some kind of context in that what the member states of the European Union have been attempting to do is to pursue a collective foreign policy amongst themselves 
whilst at the same time trying to work out what the content of that foreign policy should be. And I'd put this akin to trying to herd cats whilst blindfolded. Through the 1990s, uh, there, there, or in the early 1990s, rather, there was a rebadging of this attempt to build a common foreign policy through something called the Common Foreign and Security Policy. And what we saw in that period is that we have, well, the European Union has developed many more instruments through which to pursue that foreign policy, and the member states have also found it much easier to reach a consensus on the issues in which they do agree. And we can now identify uh, a portfolio of European foreign policy. We turn to the instruments. The European Union's now got its own uh, high representative for the Common Foreign and Security Policy, Javier Solana. Uh, I don't know who the guy on the left is at the top, but he's the one on the right. Anyway. The EU's also got its own special uh, representatives uh, for dealing with trouble spots and unresolved conflicts across the world. It uses sanctions and election monitoring in third country, sends policing missions overseas, and it's taken on the role of governor or imperial viceroy for Bosnia and uh, for Kosovo. What we can also see is that the European Union has developed a whole range of collective foreign policy positions. These are uh, known in the trade as joint actions and common positions, which address a whole range of international issues. And the European Union does all of this without what we would understand as a foreign ministry or a foreign minister or a normal uh, foreign policy budget. So it's no reason, really, that the European Union often falls back on bland statements in response to foreign policy crises. And you could characterise this kind of accumulation of foreign policy um, by thinking about the way that children play with Lego. Um, if you take a look at a box of Lego, it always has on the, the front of it a fantastic photograph. You can build a ship or a plane. or That's a fantastic Danish contribution to civilization. Um, but when you look at what children do with Lego, is they tend to just lump it all together in kind of amorphous, somewhat formless masses. And that's a bit like European foreign policy. And this comes back to my earlier point about the absence of a European geopolitical gene. It's been really difficult for Europeans to create some kind of overarching narrative for their foreign policy. And they've found it pretty difficult to recognise the power and influence that they possess collectively. They have made some moves to try and address this. It's not an unknown problem. Uh, with the European Union's first security strategy that was published in uh, December 2003... President Obama will shortly issue his own uh, US national security strategy. It happens with every administration. The EU's document is rather less ambitious, somewhat shorter. Um, but where it is important is it sets out what are considered to be the existential threats to European security and how they might be countered. And the important part about that document is it sets out a principle. And it's the closest we have to an organising principle or key tenant that guides European foreign policy. And that idea is effective multilateralism. Effective multilateralism. Now, this is not a bad uh, principle for the European Union to operate under. The idea that solve problems, you institutionalise, you create structures that you can negotiate in, and you create predictable processes. In short, what the European Union wants is to make the world in its own image. So far... I've ignored the one aspect of superpower on which I'm sure uh, you associate superpowers and which Fox puts some emphasis, which is the capacity of these powers to fight on the global scale. Now, during the Cold War, Europeans didn't have to think too hard about what military power was for or for what purposes uh, the military prepared. We subcontracted that thinking to the United States. And it's for that reason that the European Union was characterised by academics as a, a civilian power. And civilian power, the notion of the European Union as a civilian power, is the most enduring concept that we've had to characterise the international role played by the European Union. But being a civilian power is not the same thing uh, as being a pacifist power. And collectively, European states 
possess substantial military capabilities. If we take a look at the military balance, which is fantastic bedtime reading for boys, it's annual assessment of military forces and defence expenditures, um, the European Union doesn't have, a, doesn't have a, an entry for itself. And that's because, of course, the European Union doesn't have its own armed forces, doesn't even have a budget to raise and maintain armed forces. However, if we aggregate the armed forces of the member states, if we aggregate their defence budgets, then we get some very interesting comparisons. Who has the largest armed forces in terms of people in uniform? Which state? China, number two. European Union. Who spends the most on defence? United States. Who spends the second most? European Union member states collectively. Now, of course, this data doesn't offer any kind of comment in terms of capabilities, force, posture, defence policy, or anything um, in, that you may feel is meaningful in terms of what the European Union might do with its military. But alongside this, um, we also don't have a problem collectively, I mean EU member states, in sending armed forces overseas. Every EU member state, including Luxembourg and Malta, have their armed forces or members of their armed forces deployed in third countries. But they're for very specific purposes. They are for peacekeeping um, or deployed under NATO auspices. <coughs> now, for the European Union, defence was a taboo subject through the Cold War. Defence was NATO. It wasn't the European Union. Or if you're unlucky enough to be on the wrong side of the Berlin Wall, defence was Moscow. Since the turn of the century, European Union has turned what was an aspiration in the early 1990s to have a common defence policy, which might in time lead to a common defence, into, in EU terms, a really dramatic change, which the European Union now has a European security defence policy, in which the European Union, the European Union now has a capability to deploy military forces and deploys those military forces in operations beyond its frontiers. If you take a look at those operations to date, you can see that the European Union has sent... This map is in French, by the way. I think uh, it's not produced in English because we uh, in the UK would be likely to suffer from uh, coronary failure if we realised not just that the European Union was doing things militarily, but rather it was now doing uh, quite a lot. And as you can see from the map, the European Union has sent ESDP operations uh, across the globe, sub-Saharan Africa... Southeastern Europe, Caucasus, Asia, and so on. But these are for particular purposes. They're for what the European Union calls the Petersburg task. That is for humanitarian and rescue tasks, peacekeeping tasks, and combat forces involved in crisis management, including peacekeeping. The numbers involved in these operations have not been large, uh, but uh, the operations themselves, the total number of operations, is growing. Alongside this, European Union now has standby military forces called battle groups, which are 1,500 troops, two battle groups on constant standby, ready to deploy within 15 days of a crisis. These are European Union-badged forces, not NATO forces, European Union forces. And the European Union has an aspiration, forgive me for sniggering, because those in the audience who follow the ESDP will know uh, the, uh, the story here, has an aspiration, which it said in 1999, to create a military force 60,000 strong, 60,000 strong, which is capable of staying deployed overseas for over a year. So it has the capability to get people into the field, the intelligence and remote sensing capacities, and so on and so on. Which means, if you think about the way that the military operates, you need three times that number of troops, because you need troops in the field, troops who have just left the theatre, and troops who are training to go in the theatre. To reassure you, those troops are not intended for war fighting. They're intended for the Petersburg tasks. But where it's significant is that Europeans are slowly, surely, and I would suggest incrementally, developing a military capability to act independently from the United States. And underpinning all these developments are quite significant changes in defence ministry thinking and military thinking within the individual member states of the European Union. This is an absolutely fantastic area for PhD uh, research. 
And an important adjunct of this also is what's been going on within defence industry consolidation and collaborative defence procurement, which has had its ups and downs. Um, but Europeans collectively possess a defence industrial base to sustain a top-flight military. So Europeans have got, collectively, all that's necessary to become a military superpower. But we've decided that we have other priorities for our taxes. Whether the emergence of any kind of existential threat might cause that position to be changed, we'll have to wait and see. Let me draw things to a conclusion. What I've tried to suggest to you this evening is that there's a whole series of ways in which the European Union matters within international relations. And I've tried to suggest that there are changes in the environment of international relations which might be working in Europeans' favour. What I've also tried to suggest, the European Union is developing slowly a distinctive foreign policy. Even if the European Union didn't move in that direction or hadn't moved in that direction, it would still be internationally important. And Europeans, us as citizens, would still be affected by a whole variety of transnational, transborder phenomena such as migration, crime, and so on and so on, which states need to grapple. So for Europeans, collectively, a policy of isolationism isn't an option. So it isn't an option for the European Union. So collectively, we may, or Europeans, European member states, may possess the means uh, to be a significant power. But do we possess the will? And that takes me to the subtitle of Fox's work. In talking about these superpowers, the subtitle was that they have a responsibility for peace. In other words, having that power also comes with a responsibility in the exercise of that power. Now, we know from the difficulties associated with the Constitution and the Lisbon Treaties that publics are not necessarily persuaded that more powers for the European Union is a good thing. Uh, and the, European, uh, uh, the Lisbon Treaty rather contains some modest enhancements to the European Union's foreign and security policy, but they're nothing like a step change that would suddenly propel the European Union into some kind of greater coherence in its foreign policy. But... Becoming a superpower in the sense in which we understood superpower in the second half of the 20th century, nuclear armed states engaged in a global military, economic and ideological contestation, isn't desirable or feasible for the European Union, and I would suggest isn't likely uh, to develop anyway. What I think we need for the 21st century is some kind of new form of superpower. And what might a 21st century superpower look like? Well... First of all, it needs to have global reach in terms of its economy, its finance, and to play a role in the definition and management of the rules of the global economy and the international monetary system. The European Union is nearly there. Secondly, it needs to have a capacity and, crucially, a willingness to take on responsibility for actively managing and preserving international security by dealing with all military, economic, societal and environmental existential <coughs> threats that we face. The European Union is not there. Thirdly, a 21st century superpower needs to have a commitment to a set of norms and values that put a premium on human security and the challenges that now confront us in the global commons and a willingness to take the lead in solving those challenges, even when they have a domestic, political and economic cost. I'm not sure we're there yet. What I've attempted to demonstrate this evening is that Europeans collectively have uh, the capacity to be a new 21st century superpower. We already have the muscles in Brussels. Whether we want to play this role, whether we want to play this role for 21st century superpower to create a Pax Bruxellana is another matter. Thank you. As the Dean of Richard's Faculty, I'd like to thank him formally for presenting such a masterly inaugural lecture. Richard leads a team here who's focusing on the European Union and its changing relations, 
And I think whatever the future may hold for the European Union itself, it's no exaggeration to say that the University of Bath is emerging as a superpower, at least in the research field here. I think the importance of the European Union as an international actor is underlined by the size of this audience. I've been to many inaugural lectures, but I think this is easily the largest group I've seen. And it's especially good to see so many people from outside the university here tonight. So I'm sure we'd all like to show Richard our thanks one more time. Thank you, Richard.